When they say, what are we going to do to end homelessness? I say, homelessness starts in a classroom. When a child facing, sorry. When a child who's in the foster care system comes here and you have a parent in the form of teacher and a counselor and an administrator. When we complain that there's too many people in prison, where does that begin? It begins when we fail a child in the classroom. That was Mayor Eric Garcetti from Los Angeles getting kind of choked up after the defeat of Measure EE, the parcel tax measure in the city that went down to dramatic defeat, and Garcetti's view of what that would mean for kids in Los Angeles schools. Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. It's hard to pass a school parcel tax in California. It takes two-thirds of voters to approve one, and only one in eight districts in California have it. But the defeat of Measure EE in Los Angeles Unified was stunning. It got less than a majority of votes, 46%, despite pollsters for LA Unified predicting in February that it would get close to 70%. So what happened? What's next for LA Unified since it needs the $500 million per year that the tax would have brought in? And what are the statewide implications of its defeat? We'll explore that. And we're also going to tell you about a new product called Calbright. No, it's not a solar collector or a bathroom floor cleaner or California's version of the Fulbright Scholarship, though you're getting warmer. Calbright has to do with education. You'll be hearing a lot about it soon, so stick around. We'll keep you guessing for now. Well, let's get back to Measure EE in Los Angeles that, as we mentioned, would have brought in a half a billion dollars per year through a tax that would have charged 16 cents per square foot of building space on a property. That's different and more progressive than the standard parcel tax, which charges a flat tax, a flat amount, on every parcel, regardless of its size. Making it more progressive and charging by the square foot shifted the burden of who was going to pay that tax to business and commercial properties. And so the business community, the LA Chamber of Commerce, Valley Industry and Commerce Association, real estate companies, they fought it. You know, it's hard enough to pass a parcel tax and may be impossible with a well-organized campaign against it. Well, you know, it's so unusual is that the LA Area Chamber of Commerce has been very close to uh, school reform in California and has been very supportive of the school reforms that Jerry Brown had pushed through. So this was a big deal that they opposed this parcel tax. Well, the business community felt that it was jammed on this, Lewis. They felt that there was no discussion, no negotiation how to sort of come up with some kind of compromise if there could have been one. So that's when the campaign started. The problem is the district needs the money to reduce class sizes, hire more counselors, librarians, and grant the pay raises that were promised to teachers in the contract that was signed in January. Yeah, this was a tremendous defeat. I mean, less than 50% of voters supported the tax. Admittedly, a very low voter turnout. But 10 years ago, the district tried to pass a parcel tax, and it got 53%. So uh, did a lot worse this time, despite having a big teacher strike earlier this year where there was a lot of public support. In fact, that's really what spurred people to put this tax on the ballot and have an election now because they thought they could ride this wave of strong teacher support. There was actually more funding in the pro-parcel tax campaign than the anti. They outspent them four to one, believe it or not. The day after the election, that's Wednesday of this week, 
there was what I thought was a remarkable gathering, a press conference was attended by Mayor Eric Garcetti, a big supporter of the measure. Also, the superintendent, Austin Butner, who's been uh, kind of on the defensive for quite a few months, was the target of the union's anger during the teacher strike. And also there was Alex Caputo-Pearl, the head of the UTLA, the teachers' union, as well as the Charter School Association, which backed the measure. But what was remarkable was that the mood of the event was not downbeat. It was actually very defiant. They acknowledged the defeat, but the view really was that the campaign had brought together a rather unusual coalition and that really now the focus should be on Sacramento, get people organized. In fact, Superintendent Butner said, let's get on the buses right now and go up to Sacramento and see whether we can get more money out of Sacramento. So I think the big question is, what comes next? And to get his thoughts on this, we have on the line Nick Melvoin, who is on the Los Angeles Unified Board of Education. He was elected to the board two years ago. He actually got a fair amount of support from charter backers, and he's carved out a relatively independent position on the board. So Nick Melvoin, do you share some or all of the optimism that was expressed by some of your colleagues the day after the election? I think there are a few takeaways from Tuesday, and I do share some of the optimism. I mean, the coalition that was there with the mayor, uh, with our school board, with the superintendent is is an unlikely group of allies. It's the teachers union. It was the Charter Schools Association. It was SEIU. It was some of our community partners. It was all seven of our board members. And so that was not a coalition we saw in January, pre-January. We didn't see it as recently as a few weeks ago when there was a special school board election. So to see everyone stand together and acknowledge the defeat, you know, it said that victory has a thousand fathers, defeat is an orphan. People didn't run away. People stood together. So that is optimistic. I also think we need to acknowledge, too, that the the momentum that we thought was going to lead from January's teacher strike into this election proved untenable. And so that, I think, is what we're trying to figure out, kind of what, not necessarily what went wrong, but how did that excitement and enthusiasm with our teachers union not translate into a vote? And, you know, those are the lessons learned that I think we need to heed going forward. But just uh, looking at it from the outside, uh, 45% of the vote, that's really more than 20% less than the two-thirds that was needed. Can you see a scenario where you could get two-thirds of a vote? I could. You know, I think that turnout was about 10%. And so we were probably 45,000 votes short of where we needed to be, which, again, was a lot. It was about 20%. But out of a city of 2 to 3 million registered voters, with higher turnout, we might be able to turn that around. But I don't think the lesson of this is just go when more people show up. I think the lesson is what does the district need to do internally in partnership with labor to reform our practices? Because I think one of the messages from Tuesday was, We might support our teachers, but we don't trust this district to do better with more resources. And we need to do more to prove that we, not that we need the resources, I think that much was clear after January, but that we will be good stewards of those resources. And that, I think, is the open question that voters have in Los Angeles. Well, certainly getting two-thirds is hard, and conventional wisdom says you'll never do it if there's a big opposition campaign. And so what do you do, or what possibly can you do to get business either supportive of a parcel tax or at least not to oppose it as strongly as it did. Yeah, and I think that's an important component. You know, we did have some of the business community on our side and some of the big donors to the Yes on E campaign were business leaders. I think, you know, I don't take the scorched earth 
impugn motives approach that some of the coalition leaders have in the last few days. And, you know, think that we, to your point, we need to work with business and whether that means sitting down and understanding how the independent oversight was going to work or why we really do need the resources or looking at other mechanisms for a tax. Unfortunately, we can only tax property. And so there's an element where the real estate community might always oppose, but Nothing increases the value of a home like a, a strong neighborhood school. So I think there's a lot of misinformation and misperception there that needs to be uh, addressed. I also think that the conversation in Sacramento to lower the threshold to 55% um, is important. Now, we wouldn't have gotten there on Tuesday, uh, but that is an easier bar maybe to reach in unison. Uh, and so that's a conversation I know we'll all be having soon as well. Another key message that came out of the post-election gathering was really looking to Sacramento to come up with additional funds. People need to go to get on buses. Uh, the, the superintendent said school buses and go up to Sacramento. What do you see as the prospects for Sacramento, quote unquote, coming up with additional funds? Well, this is something I've been saying for a while. And weeks before our strike, I wrote an op-ed in the LA Times that said, why aren't we striking in Sacramento? I think one of the challenges of January that really reverberated in Tuesday is that we had our union at the time saying that we were hiding almost $2 billion. And even though our contention was and still is that it was all allocated over the next few years, I think that was a hard thing to overcome when voters said, wait, you have all this money. So now that there's an acknowledgement from all parties, the mayor, the teachers union, that, that we need more resources, I think we could have a united front to go to Sacramento. Now, I don't see a lot of appetite in the legislature to just increase base funding. But I think some of the conversations we've had with the governor's office around new money for early childhood, for special education, potentially some tweaks to the funding formula, looking at enrollment versus ADA, looking at more equitable special education allocations are the things where we need to really turn our attention towards. How serious now, in light of the failure to pass the parcel tax, is the financial situation of the district? I mean, the mayor was saying, you know, kind of get through the next two years. But what happens after two years? It's severe. And I think to the extent that there's any frustration on the board's part, it's probably that in January we were saying the same thing and um, we weren't getting the support from these other leaders as we are now. We have enough for next year. I mean, that was always going to be okay. I think as we look at putting together a budget this month for three years, I mean, they're going to have to be tough conversations about cuts, about potentially not increasing the class size reduction or the nurses and counselors that were negotiated to, and some more of the healthcare savings that we just were able to realize with our union, some of the pension relief conversation. You know, this is where the tough conversations will come in over the next few months when we look at and say, okay, we're not going to have this $500 million windfall. We need to continue on the efficiencies work, look at these healthcare savings, and then potentially have a tough conversation with our unions about what was negotiated to, what can we afford. Was the message clear enough to voters, Nick, about what it was that this parcel tax would be used for? As you said, in January, the union was accusing the district of hiding the money, and now all of a sudden the message changed. Imagine if I were a voter, I'd be a bit confused. Yeah, I think that was a, a huge challenge for us, both the idea that did you need the money and how are you going to spend the money? Because besides the fact that we had this reserve, the other message from the teachers union was that we just weren't good stewards of the money, that there was wasteful spending and bureaucracy. And so it was tough. I mean, I was insistent that we had independent oversight and the board unanimously passed a resolution articulating that. But that, I think, was lost on people. A lot of folks didn't realize 
that there was going to be this independent oversight. I also think the conversation, ironically enough, about pensions and healthcare entered the fray because that was something I've been saying for months. But in January, folks weren't listening. And now everyone was saying, well, wait, all this money is going to go to pensions and healthcare. That wasn't true. But some of the compensation of our teachers that people were out supporting in January is their healthcare and is their pensions. And so there was a grain of truth to say, well, yes, some of this money would go to that as part of their compensation. And so I think the messaging got a little muddled. And I just think it didn't help that we had such a negative campaign by the unions in January. Then everyone came together and said, oh, things are great. Invest in this district. It just fell on deaf ears. Well, thank you so much. We've been talking with Nick Melvoin on the Los Angeles Board of Education. Thanks for talking with us today. Thanks again for having me. For a second opinion on what happened with Measure EE, we thought we'd turn to an insider who's a source of knowledge of all things Los Angeles Unified, David Tukovsky. David was a member of the Los Angeles Unified Board of Education from 1995 to 2007 and is now a strategist for the Associated Administrators of Los Angeles, the union that represents principals and administrators. He's an L.A. native who attended L.A. Unified schools and taught history and English as a second language at John Marshall High School for 12 years. So, David, you've been a longtime advocate of parcel taxes for L.A. Unified, and you supported Measure EE. So why did it go off the rails? I don't think too many people were thinking it could go off the rails that much. The timeline was too short. It was a low turnout election. There was a city council race going that is the most Republican in the L.A. city of the 15 council races. The money wasn't spent wrong, and you had an opposition that a lot of times you don't have in these parcel taxes. Once you start taxing by square footage, then commercial and larger real estate pay a lot more, and that leads to opposition, right? Absolutely. The Chamber of Commerce jumped in as a no, and they don't usually oppose They stay quiet, and the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association also opened up a no account, both because of the details of this parcel tax and no doubt gearing up for the statewide battle over the split roll tax, which does distinguish between the commercial and residential in many ways. So knowing that there was going to be a lot of opposition, should they have picked June or should they have waited until next year and taken more time? And next year, of course, we have a Democratic presidential primary in which you are assured a larger turnout. They should have, could have uh, waited till March of 2020 when you'll have 24 Democrats running for the California primary, but it could go up and you'll have everybody coming to LA Unified, LA County, where California's vote numbers are largest, and pursuing the support of the EE. This time around, they even had Mayor Pete, Mayor Julian Castro, friends of Mayor Garcetti, no doubt, and our own U.S. Senator Kamala Harris endorsed that. But that's only three out of 24. There was no time to get a fourth or fifth or get all 24 of them. Instead, you had a city council race that had like 18 candidates, and they were competing to be more rapidly anti-EE in a low turnout race, which became a high turnout council race in a low turnout school parcel tax race. So David, what are the implications for moving forward? 
can you win a parcel tax when there is business opposition and you have to get two-thirds? Is the business community said, well, we weren't consulted in this and we're willing to work with the district. Do you think that's true? And is it possible to get a parcel tax that is passable? Yeah, yes, I think it is. There were two campaigns against. It was the more hardline Howard Jarvis. And they have, at the beginning of our facilities bond, been supportive the Chamber of Commerce, there something went wrong. I don't know, and I think the short timeline didn't allow people to negotiate a, a solution. And there was the euphoria of the strike here in Los Angeles, thinking that the in the rain, the parents and the teachers that were out there, and everybody sort of at the end singing Kumbaya, that that would somehow immediately transfer. And you have to be very clear about what you want to get this for. So, David, what are the statewide implications or what are the lessons that other districts could learn from the defeat of Measure EE? Take your time. Think through all the components. Don't rush and slip on banana peels. Don't let a compromise plan destroy your effort. Get everybody you can on board and try to keep the opponents to a minimum. Well, David, listen, thanks very much. We look forward to hearing more about uh, the aftermath of Measure EE and talk to you in the future. We don't want to leave you today without touching on higher education. We have on the line Larry Gordon, our higher education reporter. Larry, you broke the story this week about Calbright. Okay, so tell us what is Calbright? Yeah, Calbright College is the new name for what used to be called the California Online Community College. That school was funded last year and is about to open in October. It's a mainly school for adults who have been trying to get back into the workforce or who are underemployed. It is partly online, not fully online, despite its original name. The officials thought they wanted to get a name that somehow better reflected the reality of the school. And we know a lot of thought went into the choosing of a name. Uh, how was it chosen? Yeah, the community college board that governs the new college hired a consulting branding firm, the Beretta Firm of Oakland. And they apparently came up with over 100 possibilities. They test marketed some of them, did some polling, and they came down to three names. So the two losers in the final category were Embarcadero, and the other one was Calterra, but the winner, above all the rest, was Cal Bright, C-A-L-B-R-I-G-H-T. The odd thing is that they did not do much to publicly announce this name. You know, it was voted on in public meeting. It was uh, put on their agenda. But, you know, those meetings tend not to be very well covered. They are instead planning a big kickoff later this month on, on June 22nd to unveil the name, a logo, a website, and all sorts of other marketing material. Well, Larry will be covering that event later this month, and that about wraps it up for the podcast this week. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs>